You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. In the summer of 2009, the then editor of Front Porch Republic sent an email to Jason Peters telling him there was no new content to publish on the website the next day. So was born the long-running column, The Bar Jester, a series of short and humorous but perceptive essays in which Peters muses on food, culture, and anything else he's interested in. More than a decade later, Front Porch Republic Books has collected 50 of the Bar Jester essays in the book The Culinary Plagiarist, Misadventures of a Lusty, Thieving, God-Fearing Gourmand. I'm delighted that that book has brought Jason Peters onto Christian Humanist Profiles today. Thanks for coming on the show, Jason. You're welcome. Thanks for the invitation. Well, I want our listeners to get a sense of what this book sounds like, because the language you use, I think, is very important, uh, even more more important than, than most books. So if it's okay with you, I'd like to begin with your reading a passage from it. Sure. Um, I, I'll, uh, I'll read a, a paragraph from a chapter titled... After all, it almost rhymes with bikini, and this comes from fairly early in the book, and then uh, I will read, then I'll read a a couple of paragraphs from the end of that chapter. Um, This is kind of a whimsical passage, you know, I got the inspiration for it um, from a small dinner party we had uh, at our place when we were living in, in Rock Island, had some friends over. And uh, if my friends ever read this book, they'll probably recognize themselves in the final passages. But uh, this is a chapter about the, mar- about the martini. And as I said, um, the chapter title is, After All, It Almost Rhymes with Bikini. We are concerned with gin, for the martini has evolved to the point at which it seems the vermouth is not much of a concern at all, at least to judge by the way it has been backing out of the drink from the insane ratios of those that verge on the so-called upside-down martini, to Tom Lehrer's 6 to 1, to the Queen's 11 to 1, to Colonel Cantwell's 15 to 1. You may, if you like, purchase an expensive vermouth so that you can say that you use an expensive vermouth in your martini. You may, if you like, use Kena Lillet and think of yourself as a kind of 007 going so far as to name your drink after a double agent, herself named for a liturgical hour. But vermouth is not the point. It is barely even beside the point. Was it Churchill who famously said that you make a martini by shaking the gin while facing France and whispering the word vermouth? I've heard that this is so, and I'm prepared to believe it. Just as I'm prepared to believe that some people simply turn the vermouth bottle so that its label faces the gin and then proceed to shake, and then proceed to shake straight gin. But the point is that a martini is a drink composed mainly of gin and only slightly altered by vermouth, ice, and perhaps a garnish. Some folks swirl vermouth merely merely to coat the martini glass and then pour the vermouth back into the bottle. That's a way never to run out of vermouth unless you've got a real problem. I myself allow as many as but no more than three drops of dry vermouth in a martini, one drop for each person of the Holy Trinity, though I usually stop at two, one for each of the two natures of Christ. The drops go directly into the shaker or pitcher, but I freely admit that their pedigree is no concern of mine. Because I'm just a poor country English teacher and also a cheap bastard, I'll spend less on the vermouth so that I can spend more on the gin. And this brings us back to the question of what is meant by premium. It means the gin. Then I go on to discuss uh, my favorite gins. Here is how the chapter ends. My guests have arrived. They sit on the stools at the counter. My espoused saint has prepared an attractive, not to mention delicious hors d'oeuvre. Do my eyes deceive me? Or is that baked brie? It is. The smell of something simple and delectable, onions sautéed in butter, hangs in the air and promises a meal fit for puns and irony and campus gossip. But no one has tasted anything yet. First comes the martini which, like the Eucharist, requires that you come at it clean. Above everything, a little Mozart floats in the dim Chablis glow of under-cabinet lighting. The noble bottles, blue and green, stand ceremoniously to the side, near which awaits a stately shaker, a bowl of ice, and the garnishes. An overture of ice crashes into the shaker. Over the ice rolls a torrent of sapphire and a trickle of nameless vermouth. I shake and shake some more. From the ice box, I retrieve the chilled glasses into which go the garnishes to each his own. 
And then, at last, as if from a labor of ancient regeneration, the jinn and an implication of vermouth baptized the evening properly. And I think that some poor stods persist in saying that there is no God. They haven't been informed of the principal disadvantages of atheism. No one to call out to in flagrante delicto or after the first sip of a very cold premium martini. You even got my dog, even got my dog barking in the background on that one, I hope. I, I heard that, yeah. And, uh, you know, our listeners are going to be used to hearing my cat cry. So, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're probably okay with it. Plus, it, I, I think it fits your vibe pretty well. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I suspect the thing that jumps out at any reader of this book or of your columns is the persona that you've adopted for it. Now, I don't know you, but I assume it's a persona. It's, it's grumpily but good-naturedly conservative. It's masculine. It's friendly but prickly. It's slightly alcoholic. Uh, I, I assume that's a side of your actual personality, but you've exaggerated it for comedic and artistic effect. Could you, could you talk about how you developed your writing persona? Because it's very strong and very appealing. Well, I appreciate the, that remark because it's both true and perceptive. Um, you know, my, my, my wife is trying to read the book right now, and she's a little bit worried about how both of us come, come off in it. But um, one of the things that I I um, discovered early on when I was writing these pieces is how much, how liberating adopting a persona is. Um, it means um, you know it means that you can be like a John Dunn and say I can love both fair and brown, uh, which means he can love both um, brunette, uh, blondes and brunettes, even though he's the dean of St Paul. Cathedral in London in the 16th century. Sorry, 17th century. Um, so uh, when I was writing these things, I, I just kind of, I don't know, I sort of fell into a voice, kind of fell into a persona. Um, much of it, as you say, is exaggerated, but a lot of it is um, true to true to the, the writer himself. I, uh, <laughs> I, As I said to a friend of mine here uh, not too long ago, I said to him, I'm serious in church. I'm half serious in the classroom, and after that, it's pretty much all irony. Yeah, well, you say, you say that in the book as well. That what is it's uh, uh, like like uh, butter and garlic. You should triple the irony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's never too much irony. It's like a exposed thigh. There's never there's never too much. But that's um, you know, a lot of that is um, affected, and it's affected for the sake of uh, I guess license. Um, but I, you know, I wouldn't disown all of it. Let me put it that way. Your love of cooking obviously forms the backbone of these articles. And I should say, since I don't think I actually said it, m- most of them, um, involve you cooking a meal. This, this book to me perpetually takes place at like five thirty on a Saturday evening. It's, it's, it's really, a, <laughs> it's really a nice vibe, but you're almost always cooking something. I, I would love to hear about your history with that practice. Where and how did you become interested in cooking? Yeah, I've been asked this a few times and probably not enough times to, to be able to provide a, a very good answer. Um, uh, growing up, I had zero interest in gardening, gardening uh, and not much in cooking. My mom used to try to bribe me uh, with a quarter, if I, if I would hoe her garden, she'd pay me a quarter of a row, and I had no interest in that whatsoever. And now I'm, I'm in the garden all the time, in the kitchen uh, much of the time. Um, but um, it was probably after I went through the unpleasantness of earning a PhD and had a little bit more time on my hands that I began to take cooking a little bit more seriously. Before then, uh, my wife and I cooked together, and um, we dined out a little bit, and we enjoyed that, and we 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 tried to um, be courageous and adventurous in the things that we ate. But it was really in my late 20s and early 30s when I started um, taking a real interest in being in the kitchen and um, paying close attention to to what I was doing. And this was about the same time that I was thinking long and hard about you know, what it means to be to belong to a place and to be a good citizen, a good denizen of that place. Um, I can't remember if I quote Jim Harrison in this book or not, um, but Harrison 
in one of his books says it's important not to miss the world that actually exists. And that was kind of what I was doing at the time, trying to make sure that uh, this 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 great place we've landed on doesn't go by unnoticed. And that probably happened. That probably began in my in my late twenties, um, early thirties. That's so we're talking about um, you know nearly thirty years ago now. And um, and ever since then, I just uh, I know I like to be in the kitchen. I like to th- I like to recite poetry to myself. I like to think about the relationship between literature and food and and literature and the uh, the love between a husband and wife and the joy of of children, all that. And then you know somewhere down the line, out came these these essays. Uh, I noticed none of them are about baking. I have this theory that most married couples have a cook and a baker, and the cook is the person who is comfortable with improvisation. Uh, what do you think of that theory? Yeah, that's a good theory. I, I've thought a little bit about that. The only thing I think the only time I mention baking uh, in the book is when I make a passing reference to some homemade hamburger buns. Right. Yep. Yeah. Beyond, yeah. But you're right. Um, you know, in my house, the pies get baked by my wife or my daughter. I've never made a pie. I've never baked a cake. Um, the only real baking I never made cookies. The only real baking I've ever done, and I've done a fair amount of that, is bread. I love to make bread. Um, but you're right. Beyond that, the the baking gets done by other people. I'm the one who likes to be flipping things on the on the stovetop or at the grill. Well, it really fits your approach to the recipes in this book. I, I think if if readers are hoping to open it and find clear recipes for the food you're cooking, I think they're going to be disappointed because the, the recipes are embedded in these narratives, and oftentimes you don't even give measurements. So I, I don't think you could do a baking recipe in here in this no. format. So, so that's obviously no. a conscious aesthetic choice. Uh, what are you trying to do here that a more traditional recipe, even one that included a narrative, as so many online recipes do now, uh, what are you doing that you couldn't do that way? Um, I'm trying to tell stories first and foremost. Um, I'm trying to tell jokes. Uh, I'm trying to show uh, people at board uh, having having a great time, people in the kitchen having a great time. And the and whatever recipes there are, I think I say this, you know, almost in the first paragraph of the book, whatever recipes there are um, are pretty inconsequential, maybe insubstantial. And if you're looking for a, a cookbook, this is not a cookbook. This is a this is a book of stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, the food is the occasion for, cooking is the occasion for. And otherwise, you know, I'm just I just as you can as you know from reading it, I kind of indulge my prejudices and um, use this as, an, uh, as a, a way to sneak in references to my favorite writers and um, make cracks about sports that I don't like and and make uh, theological points that will get me in trouble and uh, when I'm you know at the bar with colleagues or whatever. But uh, storytelling there is truly is something here to offend everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that in the best way. I suppose that's so, yeah. You know, if you're a soccer player, you're going to be turned off pretty early on. Feminist theorists, sociologists. Yeah. Sociologists. If somebody asked me once, how come you're picking on sociologists in this book? And, you know, I, I guess I don't know the answer to that one for sure. But, um, you know, English, English departments and English professors have been the punchline of academic jokes for so long. I just decided it was some. It was time to spread the love around, so uh, I, sort of, I sort of picked sociology out of a hat and stuck with it. Well, there's also the sense that sociology is taking over English departments. Yeah, yeah, there is that. Um, it's hard to find. It's, it's hard to find good old-fashioned literary criticism anymore, which is which is the thing that got me into this racket that I'm in in the first place, and the absence of which may drive me out of it. You uh you you speak fairly negatively about academia, and I, I can't tell if that is you know part of the persona you're putting on for this book, or whether you really do kind of hate it. I love it. Um, I love the classroom so long as it's got a door and I can shut the door. But beyond that, I really dislike 
the politics, the bureaucracy, the um, the endless mind-numbing, go-nowhere meetings. Um, but uh, but I repeat myself, most meetings are like that. Um, I just I don't understand how I don't understand how colleges and universities have managed to um, divert attention from the thing at hand, which is the transmission of of culture to younger people. And uh, I, I just you know, I don't think I don't think you need 100 meetings a week to do that. I think what you need are good books and places to talk about them in. So whenever I get a chance, um, I take I take some swipes at what the what the colleges and universities have become, in the hopes that someday they'll come to their senses and and be good, useful places once again. I, I think it probably has something to do with the way you don't give measurements in your in your recipes, if you can even call them recipes. The, the, the reason the colleges can't just let you do that is because they're very concerned with quantification. Yeah, they get uh, the quantifiers get a they get treated pretty poorly in my book, um, and they deserve it. You know, they're they're taking an august, they're taking an august profession, they're turning it into a species of half-assed accounting, and uh, I you know I don't much care for it. I got in trouble fairly recently at, in a merit review for having no student evaluations to show for myself, and and the committee that oversees these said to me, "Well, you got to have these," and I said, "Well, I don't," and they said, "Well, you got to get them." I going to. Oh my gosh! I that's, always thought the, the first great... question on those evaluations should be, "Who do you think you are to evaluate me?" Yeah, yeah. That that one of the best responses I ever saw in one of those was a kid who. Uh, whom I had persuaded uh, to think of them as nonsense. And when given an opportunity to, to write something in the comment boxes, comment box in the evaluation, he said, you have wasted 20 minutes of my life and I want them back. Oh, in, in filling out the, uh, in filling out the yeah. evaluation. Yeah. And the you, the you in that sentence was not me. It was the people who were making me do this. Right. The bean counters. Bean counters, yeah. So I, I don't have much patience for this uh, this nonsense, and and um, I think maybe the my view the best thing is to to treat it lightheartedly and but call it by its rightful name, which I would say is bullshit. Well, your uh, your three spirit guides for this book are, as far as I can tell, uh, the New York Episcopalian priest slash chef Robert Farrer Capon. The mm -hmm. Michigan poet novelist Jim Harrison, who you've already mentioned, and then mm -hmm. the Louisiana Catholic existentialist Walker Percy. And I, I would I would just love to hear about the role those three writers played in the development of your consciousness and your voice. Um, Capon, you know, the, the Supper of the Lamb, which is just a tremendous book, um, is a meditation on the on food as an analog. And on the earthly city is an analog of, of the heavenly food and of the heavenly city. But it's also a very um, uh, grumpy and opinionated book, which is why I like it. And, 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 and Capon is a really terrific stylist and, and a terrific cook. And he, by the way, has real recipes in his book. You can, you can find them with, ingre with ingredients included. Um, Harrison is just, a, in, in my view, a really, really good storyteller. Uh, he's um, exceedingly, he was exceedingly, an exceedingly appetitive man. Um, could eat and drink prodigious amounts. And um, I feel a, a kinship with him, not just because he's a fellow Michigander, um, and because he likes fishing and writing, and those are things that I like, and like because he likes cooking, but because um, you know, he's he's fed up with the way that we've taken our leave of this world. Uh, our departures to him are abhorrent. And he's a he's a novelist whom I admire, and um, I really like his his book on food, The Raw and the Cooked. And Percy, what's not to like? Um, he's he's been a star of some of your podcasts here. And there'll be um, another one soon because I'm interviewing the editors yeah, of that new that new book they put out by him. Was that right? I haven't heard about it. 
Uh, oh yeah, it's his his whole philosophical project that he worked on and then kind of released pieces of in uh, in Message in the Bottle. Oh, so this is coming out I think soon. It's, I think or... it's already out. Yeah, I think Mercer University Press put it out. Really? Hmm. Well, that gives me something to do later tonight. Look into that. Well, that's good to know. Um, I, you know, Percy is a kind of a hero of mine. I I really admire. Uh, his both his fiction and his nonfiction. Um, great fan of the moviegoer, uh, Love in the Ruins especially, as gets mentioned in my book. Um, and he's, uh, you know, he's one of these guys who's just got irony down. He's got mm-hmm. it down. And I think, you know, Percy O'Connor was like this as well. Um, I suppose. You could say that um, Muriel Spark was, that Evelyn Waugh, um, Graham Greene as well. But uh, Percy and O'Connor understood that um, you had to you had to be capable of irony. You had to be capable capable of indirection if you were going to speak seriously about the Christian faith. And so they both did it. They were. I I, I kind of think they were. I'm a little bit like them. Serious in church, half serious in the classroom, and irony uh, uh, after that. But Percy, um, Percy on the topic of bourbon, for example. Oh, that is the best girls. essay ever. <laughs> yeah. Jesus, yeah, is this just, all there is? Listening to Cronkite yeah, sure. <laughs> and the grass grow? I'm almost incapable of drinking bourbon without saying that. I know it. It's just, it's just such a great, such a great essay, and I, I read it many times, and. Um, I quote from it in the book. I, um, big fan of, big fan of Saint Walker. Uh, we could talk about influences, but you use the word plagiarism instead, and it's an interesting concept for a book of recipes. In as much as this is a book of recipes, because recipes can't be copyrighted unless there's a narrative attached to them, which of course there is in your essays. So, uh, can you walk our listeners through the benefits of plagiarism, especially where food is concerned? Yeah, um, Jim Harrison says in the Ron the Cook that in in uh, cooking attribution is important, and um, I suppose it is. I, I learned when I got when I first started getting interested in cooking, I learned that there are some people who are really secretive about their recipes, and I've never never been like that. Um, however, uh, the the concept or the the notion of being being a plagiarist in the kitchen appeals to me because I think we're all derivative. I think we're all um, patchwork or quilt work of of several sources and influences. And as I say, I think in the introduction to the book, I I think the elusive style is interesting. I think um, it's it's being lost because of the decline in literacy decline in biblical literacy especially. Um, but I, I uh, you know I think the, the I think it's it's healthy to keep keep it in your head and keep it front and center that whatever you are, you are by the grace of others um, and because of others and that and that goes all the way all the way down to the to the kitchen. And um, so, you know, the, the, the idea for the culinary plagiarist um, came to me partly because I realized when I open my mouth, I'm always quoting people. And when I drop a slab of butter or some olive oil into the pan, I'm also making a nod uh, towards someone else, making a, a gesture toward the past. And, I, you know, I think it's I think it's terrifically interesting um, this notion of being indebted in everything, in the language, in the thoughts, in the habits, and even in the cooking. And so I kind of picked up on the idea of indebtedness and ran with it. You know, it's interesting. It's kind of a postmodern concept. The the post, post-structuralists are so interested in this subject, right? Instead of being a person, you're a subject, and you're this kind of combination mm-hmm. of all these texts and and it's the modernists who are really uncomfortable with that and 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 you know this older vision of the world that i think you um that i think appeals to you kind of dovetails with that postmodernism although not in a 
not in a kind of um, you know empty globalist way. It's very grounded. You're, you're a, a very concrete set of plagiarisms, I guess. Yeah, I'm not trying to. I'm not. Try, um, I wouldn't say I'm trying to uh, escape um, agency. I'm not trying to deny that there's anything like a unitary self. Um, I'm trying to say that there is, but what it is is either consciously or unconsciously the beneficiary of many, many, many sources, even as a, ri- a river is the beneficiary of, of many tributaries. And it's important to, in my view, it's important to to see that and to know it and to, and to own it. Um, I finished my coursework for graduate school in the, I guess it was the early 90s, and I don't think I've used the word postmodern since then, except in a sneering sort of way. Sure. <laughs> That's true in the, in the book uh, as well. But, you know, you're right. I mean, there's there are certain affinities there. I just, I don't think that, um, in my case, I'm trying to escape anything. I'm trying to actually embrace uh, embrace the sources that make up the self. In this case, um, <laughs> for what it's worth, for what it's worth, the uh, irony of the of the persona or the speaker in this book. Your family plays a big role in these essays, particularly your wife, whom you describe among other things as the chief eye rolling officer, which that that phrase has caught on in my house, and uh, <laughs> and the counter of cocktails. Reading this book, I felt like I know your family, even though you don't even say what their first names are. Uh, so I, w- I would love to hear about the ways that food intertwines with family for you, because obviously they're very closely connected. Yeah, um, you know, I, I, um, most of these essays were written when my children were younger. Um, I have a daughter who's a college graduate now and a son who's a sophomore in college. And the one who's the sophomore in college appears in the book in a chapter on um, summertime and barbecue chicken, and we're riding to the farmer's market on our bikes uh, early one morning, and he must have been eight or nine at the time. Uh, but now I can't get him out of bed in the morning, and I uh, can't get a lick of work out of him because he's a teenage boy, and he's the same kind of deadbeat that I was at his age. <laughs> um, so, I, you know, I, part of me wishes that I could... <laughs> I could write a sequel to this and, and, and bring the kids up to date. But, um, you know, there have always been, they've always been a part of the, the life of the kitchen, certainly a part of the life of the table. We're serious about the family meal. Um, we're serious about how we sit down and converse instead of stare at screens and do other um, unbelievably, inexpressibly stupid things. And so they're uh, and and, they, and and my kids are to varying degrees interested in in food preparation and cooking. They're not as interested as I would like them to be, but they will be, I think, at, at some point. And uh, their their differing their differing personalities has been a source of endless amusement uh, to me and to my wife. Um, I, I, I guess I shouldn't be surprised. My brother and my sister are very different from from me. So I shouldn't be surprised that my children differ from one another, but they do. And it's kind of interesting to um, try to get three very, very different personalities involved in the in the, the work and the life of the kitchen, the garden and the grill. And um, and and also to poke fun at them. You know, my younger boy is, as I said tonight when we were eating dinner, I said, this boy is 50% Eeyore and 50% Oscar the Grouch. <laughs> and uh, my older son, whom I call Mendacity in the book, is, um, we're still having conversations about the importance of telling the truth. And, uh, you know, it's just, I, mean, I just think family life and the joys of having children or raising them and having a strong, good um marriage it's just it's just for me endlessly fascinating and and um also worth writing about worth um worth telling interesting and funny stories about 
I want to talk about fasting. You use the word gourmand in the subtitle. I think it is Homer Simpson who defines that as like a gourmet, only fatter. <laughs> Gluttony is one of the seven deadly sins. I think you're trying to counter that sin with a section on fasting. So what role does fasting play in the life of the gourmand besides making him um, uh, into a gourmet? Yeah, it, yeah. Um, there's a fair. I'm sure there's a fair amount of the Simpsons in this book that is unacknowledged. Um, if for no other reason than my pal Mike, uh, the late Mike uh, Nolan, whom I dedicate the book to, was a was a Simpsons aficionado. I was born in 1982, which means I can I can carry on entire conversations in nothing but Simpsons quotes. It must be horrible. <laughs> and, you know, part of me admires that. Um, I, I I remember that um, the show was already um, fairly well long running and established when I when, when I was in graduate school. Um, but yeah, the the um, the sec- I felt the book needed a section on fasting, and it's, an, it's not a serious section, really. I mean, I have an epi- uh, uh, epigram from uh, uh, St. John Chrysostom to open that section, and I talk a little bit about the, port- the importance of um, liturgical fasting and, and how our enjoyment of, the, of everything is in, part, in, in part depends upon our willingness to um, take breaks from it, to, to, to go without and uh, I, I, what, whether I, I have, I have fasted well and I've fasted poorly in liturgical seasons, but in theory I remain committed to the idea that we, that we ought to be there. There ought to be deserts in our diet. There ought to be uh, periods of, of abstinence from all sorts of things, especially the things that that we like. And I felt the book needed a section on that, so I put it in there. Um, I used it as an opportunity to make some cracks about breakfast and um, some more cracks about uh, Bruce Jenner, which I kind of like. Um, I forget exactly the wording, but something like uh, like I, I, like Bruce Jenner breakfast ain't what it used to be, or something like that. I, I took a photo of that page and sent it to my friend Bob, who is notably. Uh, skeptical of dietitians. He's a biochemist, and he just hates dietitians. So I sent him that page, and he said, well, I can tell he's uh, politically incorrect because he talks about Bruce Jenner. <laughs> <laughs> well, if he's skeptical of dietitians, that's fine with me. I I've, I find food interesting and calories um, um, inexpressibly boring. <laughs> I don't hydrate. I drink water. Um, you talk uh, about not drinking alcohol, drinking wine. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's not abstract things. Let's, right. let's not call it by one of its constituent parts. Let's let's call it by its by its right name. But yeah, I, you know, I think the, um, the I think the church is right about this. The the feasts are made better by the seasons of fasting that precede them. And um, even the the passage that I read from from the chapter on the martini you, you come at it clean the way you come at the eucharist clean it's it's i think it's simply the case that if you're if you're having a dinner party and you're waiting for your guests to arrive the best thing that you can do for yourself say say you're shaking martinis all the way around the best thing you can do for yourself is to make sure that nothing touches your lips until you take that first razor sharp cold sip uh mm. And uh, it's 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 um, it's beauty and it's savor and it's wonder are enhanced um, because of the discipline that precedes it. You are Eastern Orthodox. Yeah, I am. Yeah, that's 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 what I gathered from the book. And and so to return to the fasting issue, one of the um, one of the most striking things about Orthodox practice, and I don't know how many non-Orthodox know this, but Orthodox are essentially vegan for a third of the year during Lent and Advent. And I think there's a third fast, isn't there? Yeah, there's, well, it seems like every time you turn around, there's a fast. You can't, <laughs> you can't swing a dead cat by the tail without without hitting one. But um, the Advent fast is longer in the East than in the West. The, um, the, um, the fast before Resurrection Sunday is longer by a good eight days. 
and then there are fasts that precede all the major feasts. Um, so we're, um, you know, we are if we're if we're attentive to the church's prescriptions and the liturgical calendar, uh, we're going without the things that we like a fair amount. But it's not just that yeah. they're longer. I, um, I'm Roman Catholic now. I, um, I, I attended an Eastern Orthodox church for several years in college. And like the Eastern Orthodox, aren't, aren't, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were required or at least expected to give up meat, dairy, and oil. Is that right? Yeah, that's most of the fasts. Um, I, would, I won't say prohibit, but most of the, in, in most of the fasts, um, meat, Dairy and oil are um, on the list of prescribed abstinences, I guess you could say. And, you know, Catholics complain about having to give up chocolate for 40 days or whatever. I, yeah. I always want to tell them, you know, uh, the Orthodox, the, the Orthodox would not listen to you complain about this. But the reason I ask is because I expected in that fasting section, once I figured out you were Eastern Orthodox, I expected to get some vegan recipes. And I, I wonder if there was a... Um, if you had a reason for not doing that, you know I don't. I, I, I don't have a reason for not doing that, and I've never really given it um, much thought. But, you know, I, I I say a few things about vegetarianism in the book, not very many. Um, and when I do talk about fasting, say from meat or from dairy products, I. In that section, I do it in a pretty ironic and self-deprecating way, I guess you could say. Yeah, you do. <laughs> uh, but you know, I, you know, I think when for me the the um, the Lenten fast, for example, is just one of those periods where you can just count on not enjoying your food very much because there's not much to enjoy about it. I, you know, my own my own approach, for example, is I don't um, I, I don't. I don't think it makes a whole lot of sense to try to find as many ways around the fast as you can. Mm-hmm. So I'm not using oil, but I'm using margarine, or I'm not using fish, but I'm using shrimp, or you know, I'm, um, whatever. You know, it, it just seems to me that uh, the whole point here is <laughs> is um, to sp- to experience some real uh, deprivation. Mm-hmm. To so, suffer. Yeah, and, and I didn't, you know, I really didn't pay any attention whatsoever to the kind of cooking that goes on during Lent um, because I just don't find it interesting. I guess. I don't well, think- I wondered if that might be it—that the, the the whole the idea of making gourmet gourmand uh, vegan recipes is kind of uh, contrary to the whole spirit of the thing. Yeah, we, we, we've got a few things that we make around here, a few meatless things that we make that taste pretty good. Um, I happen to like the resistance of meat against my teeth when I'm eating, and these dishes don't provide that. But, you know, we can make, and we do make some things that, that taste pretty good. Um, but I always I always feel a little like I'm you know, taking a shortcut or, or something like that uh, when I do that. And, there, you know, there have been... I didn't write about this in the book, but there, there have been times when I've been really strict on myself about the fast and times when I haven't been very strict about them at all. But if you're drinking water and eating bread only for several days at a stretch, you might as well write about baseball or something interesting because <laughs> it's not interesting. <laughs> yeah, it'd be, it would be hard. I guess I, it would just have to be an essay on fasting, but then also complaining about the fast is also against the spirit of the fast, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's, uh, I don't tread lightly in many places in the book. Um, but, um, you know, the, the, the um, prescriptions that descend to us from antiquity are worth attending to and they're worth taking seriously. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess I, I, I didn't consciously keep my hands off them in this book. I just... Uh, Passed over as quickly as I as I could, I guess you could say, because I didn't. I just don't find um, Lenten foods interesting, and they don't give me very many opportunities to tell raunchy jokes. That's, that's true. <laughs> You're right, though. You keep that fast, and uh, Easter Sunday is really something. It is, yeah, yeah. 
Near the end of the book, you digress a bit to offer a certain agrarian philosophy that I think is probably familiar to readers of Wendell Berry and to readers of the Front Porch Republic. Uh, the central premise of those few essays is that we have replaced soil with money. Uh, it's a very striking image. Could you explain to our audience what that means? Yeah, the the um, the agricultural revolution that took place in the in this country after the Second World War uh, was the there's a lot of ways to describe it. The, the, the way I describe it in the two chapters that you referred to in the, in the middle part of the book, which is, an, you know, kind of a digression or an aberration. I don't I'm not very serious very often in the book, but in these two chapters, I am. What happened after the Second World War is we replaced people with machinery and um, energy and money, cheap money. Um, kind of a way that we're doing right now. I mean, interest rates were low. People were borrowing. Uh, they were borrowing to buy um, petroleum-based inputs to pound their fields with, and they were borrowing to buy machines that were replacing people. And uh, the really uh, um, disastrous consequence, in my view, of this is that uh, when you evict people from the land, they no longer have any real sense of what food is, where it comes from, and what we all depend on for our continuance. Chief among those things is topsoil. And the, um, the inputs of machinery and uh, chemicals and money have been, for a good 70 years now, been sending that topsoil into the rivers and down toward the Gulf of Mexico. And um, you don't replace topsoil very quickly. And you don't replace it with with um, petroleum-based inputs, the like chemical fertilizers, nitrogen, um, and even more so um, pesticides that are uh, an answer to no-till practices. You stop tilling, you don't get the weed control that you used to have, so you have to use um, pesticides, which weeds are adapting to now because that's what weeds do. So I spend two chapters uh, in the book talking, I hope, seriously and carefully about the display, the, the removal of people from the land um, and their replacement with machinery and chemicals and cheap money. Uh, I think this is a very great danger. It's, it's the theme of Wendell Berry's book, The Unsettling of America, from 1977. And when the, um, when the energy runs out, and there's nothing to drive the machinery. And when the natural gas runs out, which is the feedstock for nitrogen-based fertilizers, uh, we're going to be left with a denuded, with denuded farmland and lots of people who have no idea how to produce food. And then at that point, the uh, college professors across the country are going to be Amish farmers because they're going to be the only people who know anything and they're going to be the most valuable citizens that the country has because they didn't let this happen. They didn't let money or chemical inputs or machinery replace them. They decided they weren't going to be kicked off the land and they stayed there. Uh, I think this is an important issue, and so I decided to spend a couple of chapters um, talking about it, along with, you know, a, a chapter about uh, how – Incompetent women are in the kitchen when it comes to cleaning up. You're in the dishwasher, yeah. My, uh, yeah I read that chapter to my wife, and she uh, she informed me that I'm the one who doesn't know how to load the dishwasher. <laughs> Although now when I load no. it, I do hear your voice in my head explaining very patiently how a dishwasher works. Because like your <laughs> wife, I figured it was magic. Yeah. <clears throat> well, the rules reverse sometimes. Well, I'm the baker, so I I, I, I think probably you, your approach is probably closer to Victoria's than to mine, at least in the kitchen. That's all right. We need uh, we need balance, especially between husbands and wives. So the the apocalypse you're talking about when do you when do you see it happening? I mean, are we talking uh, in your gonna... lifetime? Are we talking a hundred years from now? Well, with my cholesterol levels, probably not in my lifetime. Um, I, uh, 
my crystal ball, I guess, is as, is as foggy as anybody else's, and I'm I'm very skeptical of people who put dates on their predictions. Um, but I have a strong suspicion that my own children, should they see four score a year and ten, will need to know a lot of the things that I'm trying to teach them right now and that they're resisting because the whole culture is resisting them and their friends are. Um, I'll, I'll make this quick. I, you know, we... The people who the people who looked at oil production had said, you know, we're going to have peak peak oil production in America in the 1970s. That turned out to be true until shale oil and fracking came along, and then we actually exceeded that production for a short time. But that was a stunt. It was a short-lived um, window that kind of um, gave us a timeout to catch our breath. I think I think we're probably. Probably my children will live in a really energy scarce world, and they're going to have to learn what it means to live by solar power. That means the energy of the body. I don't mean solar panels. I mean manual labor. I mean work, uh, such as my own dad and his brothers uh, grew up doing until um, the economics and the technology after the Second World War told them, ah, leave the farm. We don't need you there anymore. We can do this. We can we can do the work of a thousand people with one person. That's going to end. Whether it's going to end soon or later, uh, I don't know. But it is going to end, and I expect it will be in this century. Hmm. So the whole age of energy, the whole globalist age—that's all just a blip on the on the radar of history. Yeah, I think it's going to be. A, it's. <laughs> I would I would love to be able to be a historian in 500 years and to look back on this anomaly called the industrial revolution and say, wow, what were people thinking? You know, what, uh, did they really believe that there were infinite supplies of energy on a finite planet? Uh, that's, that's manifestly idiotic in my view. Um, so I, you know, I, I, I guess I do, I do think, um, the future is going to be a lot more like the 1920s than the 1990s. Let's put it that way. I remember Madeline Lingle said, "If we want to have any kind of future at all, we're going to have to learn to be hot and cold, like our like our grandparents were." Yeah. <laughs> where is she? Where did she say that? Oh, I think it's I think it's in Circle of Quiet. Okay. It's in one of those Crosswix books. I read um, I read recently somebody quoting Einstein. I, I I can't believe I'd never heard this quotation before, but apparently Einstein said that World War Four is going to be fought with uh, shovels and uh, sh- shovels and dirt and, and 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 mud balls or something like that. Uh huh. Yeah, I've heard that attributed to him. I've got the I've got the terms wrong, but. That's uh, that was that was prescient, I think, on his part. He also, I think, said, "When the honeybees go, uh, we're toast as well." Well, don't worry. Walmart is developing robotic bees to take their place. <laughs> what could go? What wrong? could go wrong? <laughs> oh man, can you imagine? Can you imagine thinking that that was a appropriate solution to the honeybee crisis? Oh, we'll just get some robotic yeah. bees. Yeah, it's. I mean, there are so many nutty solutions out there. I was trying to explain this to one of my sons uh, the other day. You know, the John Carr Ransom said, uh, this was back in the 1930s, is the solutions are always homeopathic, which is to say they always come from within. So the solution to too much technology is more technology. <laughs> if you are infl- infinitely distracted by your technology, then get some more technology to download onto it that will shut it off for two hours a day. But you know, God forbid you should have any discipline or restraint uh, to put it away. And likewise, our you know, the ecological crisis is, um, in large measure, it's a, it's a moral problem. It's many kinds of problems, but in large measure, a technological problem. And to suppose that the solutions to that are more technology 
is, in my view, nutty. And Ransom nailed it in the 1930s. That the uh, solutions are always coming from within instead of from without. I just don't know how you go back unless there's the kind of apocalypse you're talking about. I mean, people aren't going to relinquish their technology, I don't think. Um, no, they're not going to relinquish it until there's nothing to run it on anymore. And there's, right. Or there's no material to make it with. The, the apocalypse. And, yeah. And, you know, reality will, will bring you back to Earth. Um, I, I don't know if I use this analogy in the book. Maybe I do, but... Um, you know, uh, an airplane stays aloft as long as there's fuel to burn in it. And uh, once the fuel runs out, gravity has a way of recalling it to Earth. And uh, I think reality is going to have a way of calling us back to Earth once we're fairly well out of the things that we depend on right now. So, I, you know, I, I think people should cook their own food. I think they should grow a lot of their own food. Um they should be intimately involved in all these processes for many reasons, not the least of which is there's a great joy to be had in it. Mm-hmm. There's nothing like bumping fannies with the one you love in the kitchen. <laughs> Let's talk about some of those other reasons, the non-apocalyptic reasons for focusing on our local places. I mean, this is the stock and trade of the front porch Republic, of course. I mean, that's what the, that's what the name refers to as far as I know. And you're, you're the editor of their print magazine, local culture. So make a, make a case for why, uh, we should be focusing on the place where we are as opposed to every other place. Well, this could get us back into Percy and uh, O'Connor if we wanted to. Um, I have a lot of good friends. They're good people, and they are, and they love humanity. But that's sentimental and it's abstract, and it's not the same thing as loving humans. It's not the same thing as loving your neighbor. It's not the same thing as loving the person who is close at hand. And they may love the planet, but they may not love their own neighborhood long enough to stay in it and to make it better. Uh, I think that we have, amid all the abstractions of our lives, and uh, we have a completely abstract relationship to food, amid all the abstractions of our lives, we have lost um, many of the joys that are available to us in a given place at a human scale. And those can be realized in the kitchen or at the grill or in the garden with family members and with neighbors. Anybody who has a garden this time of year knows that uh, one of the great joys of having a garden is having a surplus and being able to you know, walk across the fence line and say, here, take these cucumbers. They'll go bad if somebody doesn't eat them. Uh, that's those, those kinds of relations and those kinds of intimacies with the earth, with food, with other people, are, okay, are, are opportunities for great joy and a real affection, not sentimentality. And um, I happen to think that we've done a poor job of building the human environment. Um, we've built it way out of scale. It has enabled us, it has allowed us and encouraged us to be good in the abstract instead of good in the particular. And um, so I, th- I think um, aside from whatever reality has in store for us, we've got uh, much goodness available to us if we will just balloon back to Earth and spend some time getting to know the place that we are instead of dreaming about the next place to be in. If where you are isn't as good as where you might be, you're a lousy citizen. You're a bad human, and you're missing out on much that is good in this world. Um, and, you know, you can you can eat at restaurants your whole life and not know how to boil water or whatever, but one of the points I try to make in the book is there's an, there's there are a few pleasures in this life, like walking into a room and smelling onions sautéing in butter. No, that's true. And 
and remembering that you live here in a world where there are onions and butter and heat to saute them over and other people to talk to and listen to and um, bump into and exchange lascivious glances with and all sorts of other things. The, uh, the uh, mass culture can, can go to hell. I don't want any part of it. I want local life. I want real people, real food, real fun, real music. You know what? Hang on. You you uh, you say the mass culture can go to hell, but you have multiple pay-ins to Journey of all bands, the most mass culture <laughs> of mass culture rock bands. Yeah. I got to remind you that uh, after the church in the classroom, it's all irony. <laughs> I do, after all, call them the best dressed rock band ever. You know, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure I know how Journey dresses. <laughs> Badly. <laughs> well, you were see, you were you were born in the '80s, but I lived through them. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. And I didn't listen to pop music till the late '90s, probably. So you were spared some pretty bad stuff and some bad clothing and. I grew, up, I grew up listening to talk radio, so I'm not sure I had it any better. What was your What was your uh, diet of talk radio? Well, this was pre-hateful political talk radio, so I listened to. I'm from Atlanta, and I listened to uh, AM 750 WSB, and they had, oh, you know, they'd they'd have a show where the guy would decide at the top of the hour that what he wanted was to talk to listeners about their least favorite commercials. <laughs> Things like that. I, I cut out yeah. about the time uh, WSB went uh, full-scale Republican talk radio. I'm glad to say. Yeah. Yeah, you, you, you can take only so much of the Empire's jaw, and then pretty soon you're you're looking for a warm bath to slide into after you've opened a vein. <laughs> that's true. That's true. <laughs> well, no, but, I you know, a... I, I, say, I say mass culture can go to hell, but what I mean is... Um, it's not as good as local life, and uh, uh, given the choice, I'll take the I'll take the real flesh and blood people. Well, you do listen to it on a not, not the name you claim to, so that's uh, that's that's at least closer to yeah, local. yeah, yeah. I have been steering the conversation so far, but in the spirit of hospitality here on Christian Humanist Profiles, we like to let our guests have the last word. What haven't we talked about today that you'd like our listeners to know? Uh, I guess um, I should say, and I like I like the readers to know that um, there is a there's a seriousness to this this book. It's mostly jest, it's mostly fun, but there's a thread of seriousness that runs through it. Uh, you remember that there are two um, opening quotations. One is from Isaac Dennison's Babette's Feast, and the other is from a Looney Tunes cartoon. And those signal the the mixture of seriousness and and um, irony uh, in the book. But I, I I do end the book on a on a fairly fairly serious note, and this is a tribute to my friend Mike, to whom the book is dedicated. Um, I think it's important to bear in mind that everything that we do is an analog of something that strikes on a higher plane that belongs to a higher order um, that we will realize and experience um, at another time in a deeper way. And food is one of those things. It's an analog. It's a, um, it's a pointer to something much, much greater than itself, even as my own marriage and my own family and my own small little hobby farm here are analogs of, of something greater. I hope readers... I hope readers laugh through the book. I hope they share favorite passages with people, but I hope they understand that there's a um, there's a I don't know how to put it. There's a real there's a point to it all, and that is it's not about us. It's about something bigger um, that we wait for that we wait for and hope. Well, the irony in this book is not to use your favorite word, postmodern irony. It's it's an ethical irony. It's an irony that is trying to point us to a better way to live. And I, I think in that sense, it's a very moral book. 
I hope so. Um, it's <laughs> it uses a little immorality, a little off-color humor to to gesture in that direction. But I think you're I think you're right. It's uh, that's and that's a perceptive comment. It's um, it is finally I hope a moral book. Well, we've been talking to Jason Peters about his latest book, The Culinary Plagiarist. It's out now from Front Porch Republic Books. You'll find a link to buy it on the show notes for this episode at christianhumanist.org. Christian Humanist Profiles is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. Thanks for listening.